The Money Cafe is brought to you by Eureka Report, your one-stop shop for all things finance. To sign up for your free 15-day trial, head to eurekareport.com.au. Now it's time to enjoy today's episode. Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report, finance presenter on the ABC News and columnist for the New Daily. And I'm Stephen Main, contributor at Eureka Report, founder of Crikey, shareholder advocate, city of Manningham councillor and unsuccessful candidate for the board of Aristocrat Leisure. And uh, we, and are we are the, the Money, Money Cafe. Cafe. And we're a couple of days early, uh, coming out on Tuesday this week because uh, I'm, um, I'm emceeing an AICD two-day conference. Which um, You get all the big jobs, don't you? You know, the man, you've, haven't you got enough jobs? People like battlers like me could do Apparently, a gig like that. I know, I should give you some, should yeah, I? Yeah, I want some crumbs at the cola table. <laughs> did you see, speaking of which, did you see my piece on the on 7.30 last night? No. Tell me how good it was. It what was, did you say? It was excellent. It was 12 minutes, 12 and a half Ooh, minutes long. Gee whiz. Um, and it was about... Um, or, you know, the economy and uh, the working poor and how terrible things are at the moment and how the uh, the rules need to change for dealing with inflation, in my opinion. And have you had so. the Ita Buttrose ring you this morning saying you've doubled ratings, what a cracking story overnight, Alan, well done? Or did, no, it, did it cause an explosion from, across the country? Did crickets it? from Ita. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, no, it's good. I like doing stuff for 7.30. It's the, the terrific people to work with. Yes. Um, so, yeah. That's uh, all good. Well, I say bring back inside business. I used to love your long-form TV interviews on inside business, but uh, yeah. anyway, that's probably a decade ago, isn't it? They killed that one off? Yeah. Anyway, at least we got you on 7.30. Now, today, Alan, is the last day of the reporting season, February the 28th. And the trash gets taken out. The garbologists are extremely busy in the boardrooms of Australia. That's right. There'll be probably more than 300 results by 10 o'clock tomorrow because you usually get 60 or 70 that desperately get their results out on March the 1st because they get suspended at 10 o'clock on March the 1st if they haven't lodged. So you get the 300 on the last day and then you get the even later, <laughs> uh, don't suspend me, sir, sort of uh, coming out at uh, in the morning of March the 1st. And there'll be more than 200 losses sprinkled across those 300 as the... Uh, Disorganised and the embarrassed released their results we to had the a few world yesterday, didn't we? I mean, a few shockers. Yeah, Downer was a Downer yesterday. Downer EDI. I think you mentioned them on the news, did you? Or Invocare? And Invocare got buried as I the death industry out. giant. Death industry giant. Yeah. You know what I like about the Invocare is there's a guy called Smith who was their uh, CEO. For many years, and now he's the chairman of Monash IVF. So he's gone from running the biggest death, death company, death to, to life. He's gone to <laughs> That's from right. Death to birth. Yes, well, but uh, most of us go the other way around. We do. <laughs> we do. So, so yes. Yeah, so any other? So what's broad- going on? What's, what happened with Aristocrat? You mentioned that in your introduction oh, as well, an unsuccessful. I mean, but you were. I mean, you were significantly unsuccessful. I mean, it wasn't just a, a small. Uh, failure was it? It was a well, spectacular failure. It was the, it was the lowest vote I've ever got in in fifty five board tilts. And I used to always, when I go to conferences, I used to say, you know, who else can say they've had more than three hundred billion dollars worth of stock voted against them? Well, Friday was another fifteen billion. 
where uh, I only got $51 million worth of votes in favour, which was 0.33% of the voted stock, so not even 1%. But even those people voted for you by mistake. By accident, donkey vote or something, yeah, that's by right. So, in, in so there's no way that any shareholder of Aristocrat Lizard <laughs> is going right. to vote for Stephen Maine. <laughs> no right. way. See, it's not often I run for a board where I'm trying to shut the business down. So I am a, a vehicle for value destruction. Exactly. So um, it's not, but in political parlance terms, you got to get four percent to get your deposit back. So I was a long way from getting my deposit back. And Frank Lowy, for twenty-three years, he's held the title for lowest vote for Stephen May. When I ran for the Westfield Holdings Board in two thousand, I got 0.4. and now there's an even lower one, 0.33 at Aristocrat. But gee, we carved them up, me and Nick Xenophon at the AGM, absolutely carved them up. We had all the TVs there, so it was a highly successful exercise water from off a, a duck's back, PR Stephen. point of view. Absolutely, water off a duck's back. I mean, they didn't look like happy the ducks on the top table. They I were sucking a, lemons, I, I can tell you. I reckon you're a spectacularly unsuccessful anti-pokies campaigner oh, as well, well. Our whole movement are. If yeah. there is any reform movement that has failed, it is us. Yeah. 25 billion getting lost a year. What have we been doing for t- t- 25 years? Well, you've we failed. Failed. And we need to turn that around. Finally, st- got, starting in New South Wales. Finally, got cr- cashless cards in New South Wales. Maybe no, well, just a promise. It just won't happen because they'll you know he'll lose. He'll lose. The industry is pumping cash into Chris Minns. Uh, Minns will win, and he's a poodle of the industry, so it won't happen. Is my pessimistic? I mean, you got to be used to be pessimistic after 25 years of losing in this space, Alan. Yeah. Anyway, but hopefully we'll get something out of the feds on gambling advertising because the punters are all sick of $300 million of TV ads as well. So, And the casinos have been cleaned up. I mean, Star and Crown have been cleaned up. So we've had a few little wins, but overall it's been terrible. So I reckon, just on another matter, I reckon Andrew Forrest and Kerry Stokes should be put in a boxing ring with gloves on and told to slug it out. I mean, they are slugging it out in... Uh, in other ways, are they not? Oh, it's a wonderful... I mean, I always... The, the worst thing you can happen in life is billionaires colluding. It's much healthier when they fight because it's interesting. They're, they're strong and they're tough and it's transparent. You can see it. So, Especially when one, of the, when, when one of the billionaires controls some media. Well, that's right. Well, there's the old rule about you don't pick a fight with someone who buys ink by the gallon. And, <laughs> that's uh, right. But, but uh, Tricky Forrest has picked a fight with Kerry Stokes on climate change, sacked him as a supplier for not giving him hydrogen haul trucks, gone for a German alternative. And then Stokes has started to deploy his Monopoly newspaper to discredit and damage Twiggy, seemingly out of commercial revenge, if you believe Twiggy's side of it. But I'm sure Kerry is utterly independent and wouldn't tell his editor well, that's what, what to say. That's what Kerry's son, Ryan, says. It's absolutely got nothing to do with uh, his you know, refusal to buy trucks off Caterpillar. Yes, you but would, 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 would the West go to war with the Murdochs or James Packer if there was not an issue? I mean, why he's Fortescue's had a wonderful run out of Kerry Stokes in the West ever since Stokes bought control in 2008, and then all of a sudden, it's war. Stokes is a fossil fuels guy. He doesn't pick fights with fossil fuel guys. Why is he picking on Twiggy? And I think he's trying to deplatform the number one climate activist in the billionaire milieu. And Twiggy is a bit mad, doesn't take it lying down. He's about to get a $750 million dividend on March the 29th, which is about the value of the whole of Seven West Media. So Twiggy's worth $30 billion. I say be careful, Kerry Stokes. <laughs> Don't take on a mad billionaire. <laughs> <So>. <laughs>
<laughs> That's very good. Now, listen, we're going to talk about the Super Wars, but we're going to do it through the questions because we've got a few questions on that subject. Um, so do you want to go with the first one? I do. So Angus is saying that the Money Cafe discussion last week seemed to give a fairly easy ride for the Albanese government's broken election promise of no changes to super. And then Angus basically is doing the old, what about all those politicians and judges who are making out like bandits on their defined benefits schemes? Uh, so I guess there's two issues in Angus's question is, you know, it's a broken promise and are we going soft? And what about the defined benefits? Is everyone being treated equally? And I think I would start by saying that, as Nick Minchin wrote in a letter to the Australian, uh, retired politicians in the defined benefit scheme pay full income tax on their benefit. Unlike beneficiaries of accumulation schemes whose benefits are tax-free, unquote, says former Senator Nick Minchin. Now, that is true, although you can get a 10% rebate if you use the ATO calculator. It's almost a bit like a, a franking credit scenario. If you're in that Commonwealth scheme, you can wrangle your way up to 10% off, but it is untaxed income. So if Nick Minchin is earning $300,000 from all his board seats, including being the chairman of the Foreign Bookmakers Association, if he's copping at $200,000 on top of that through his parley pension, he's paying 47%. He's paying full freight. So it's not right to say that defined benefit public servants are getting tax-free giggles and it's unfair in that context. But it is clearly a broken promise because the Albanese, Absolutely. because Anthony Albanese said there would be no changes to super. And I would just observe that every government breaks promises. And really, yeah, I mean... Yeah, I mean, promises it, promises are good in the sense of you need to be able to trust them. But promises are also bad. I look at the New South Wales gambling industry where every year, six months before the election, Clubs New South Wales bullies the Liberal and Labor Party to sit down and sign a memorandum of understanding that says for the next four years we're not going to touch you. So it's like writing a contract before the election to saying we'll leave you alone because you're so privileged. So that's a promise. It's actually a written promise and I think it's very bad politics to sign away your policy flexibility from opposition. But they all do it. And so you should say policy promises will usually follow them unless circumstances change, as Kane said, and when the facts change, a politician should be able to change too. Uh, my view about the super broken promise is that it's um, they should be breaking promises for more money than they're going to get out of super, which is a billion dollars. I mean, uh, John Howard broke his GST promise. He said there'd never, ever be a GST yeah. uh, with him, which he broke – uh, but he the, didn't well, really break it because he put it to the people. He put it to the people, that's yeah, right. Correct. So he did in 1998. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's what Labor should do. Labor should do policy tax reform uh, term two and put it to the people in 18 months' time. That's right. That's what they yeah. should do. And I, I, think totally they'll, I think they'll put this on the shelf. You know why? I think they'll do it quickly within the next fortnight because I think it's going to potentially cost them the New South Wales election and I think it could cost them the Aston by-election as well because broken promises on people's super is fertile scare campaign yeah. territory, particularly with the ghosts of franking credits looming large. And look, Labor has a history of favouring their mates. I mean, the franking credits thing, industry super funds were still going to get franking credits spread out amongst their members, whereas the SMSFs were going to cop it. Mm. And this time the SMSs are going to cop it and, and industry super funds are still being preferred by the government. Yeah. So. Um, Michael's kind of saying that $3 million is too low because he's you know, pointing out that most people can get more than that 
um, uh, over time using compound interest. Um, and that's probably right, isn't it? I mean, yeah, I think it is. I mean, the the, the really big hundred million plus uh, balances are all pre two thousand and seven, when you could put in unlimited amounts, and then you've had just you know roaring share markets and you know property going up, etc. So those massive balances are they're going to roll off in time because you can't create one of those now. And I do agree. I think three is too low, particularly if you're breaking a promise. So if the government comes out in the budget and says five, and you're only hurting. 8,000 people across the country and you say that's it for this term anything else next term I think they can get away with that but I think the more they grab the worse their brand damage for and that goes against your argument because you're saying if you're going to break a promise make it a decent grab No but I'm also saying that you should go to the people with it I mean I think that's right um, but but because uh, I mean the GST in the first year of the GST it raised $23 billion I mean now it's now the GST is worth $80 billion a year I mean um, still not enough. Know. I mean, it's still getting way too much out of company tax and income tax, and the the consumption taxes are still relatively low by world standards. Yeah, yeah, but company ta- GST is regressive. I, don't, I mean, I'm not, I don't think it should be increased at all. Yeah, no, I just think it should be broadened. It should be on everything. School fees a lot, but um, anyway. But now, retiree Greg is basically he's on the three million cap as well, but he's basically accusing the media of being misleading by suggesting there's going to be some mass liquidation of SMSFs if this is introduced. And he's right because the government is not proposing that everyone has to get assets out of there and reduce it to $3 million. They're just simply saying the concessions run out at $3 million. So you've got your $100 million, you can still hold on to it, but then you'll just have to have an actuary come in and calculate which is the $3 million, which is tax preferred. And in fact, I think they're talking about more. putting the 30% tax on... Balances above whatever the whatever the cap is, not to tax them at the marginal rate, but to tax them at thirty percent. Yeah, and once you 15. do that, and I think that that uh, will cause a mass liquidation of assets within well, SMSF. It's still a bit of a tax shelter, not little as much bit, of one, but not as good as not as good as the family home or fully frank shares uh, leveraged, leveraged fully frank shares, negative gearing. There's there's still quite a few tax lurks out there, Alan. You got to got to look under a few rocks. <laughs> Um, one of the ones we got on Super. Now, there's another one here where um, Richard says the whole debate is beyond stupid and he's basically saying that at the moment there's already a death tax embedded in Super. And he's actually right about this because if you have an, a taxable element of your Super and you die and you move to pass that on, if it is taxable, as opposed to the untaxed element of super, and it's you know it's a red cordial, green cordial thing, it's either a, a taxable or it's a untaxed. If it's taxable, well then if it does pass on, you got to pay the seventeen percent basically, which is the fifteen percent super tax plus the Medicare levy. Yeah, so what's wrong with that? Well, it's a death tax because well, if, sure, you, if, you, but, if you own Commonwealth, if you no, own your property and you sell it, you don't have to pay seventeen percent to the government. So there's an element of death tax within the super system. But we're, but, but we're saying that. But, but anything above 1.7 million is taxable, right? Yeah. That's the deal. It's yeah. untaxed up to 1.7. Yeah. So presumably, if it's less than 1.7 million and you die, it's not taxed, right? Yeah. So if it's above 1.7 million, it's taxed. Yeah, but I'm just saying. I'm just saying that why should any tax be triggered when someone dies and a benefit is passed on because if you've got a $20 million mansion and you die, so there is it is, just it gonna, is factually correct to say there is an element of death tax within the super system. So it's just, not as tax preferred as people try and argue. But that would just 
trigger a wave of suicides. <laughs> People would just kill themselves in order to avoid tax. People do anything to avoid tax. They do. They are, it's amazing how motivated people are about avoiding tax. That is absolutely one of the great truisms. Emily yeah. says, I was wondering if the recent superannuation tax cap announcement might have the unintended consequence of retirees choosing to sink their money into larger primary residences, making family-sized homes even more comp- competitive to afford. I already know one retired couple who have upsized to preserve their wealth. Is that right? Upsized to preserve wealth. That's, um, that's, that's a, a new, new one. one. That's a new one. Look, I Crikey. think, that, look, look, at the end of the day, the... Uh, the holiday of tax on the family home and the lack of death duties in Australia does make the family home a ver- the most tax-preferred thing. So if you've got parents living in a $10 million mansion, you don't want them to downsize. You want them to hang on and then sell it off for $10 million and then if you've got 10 kids, they get a million each and the tax man doesn't get a look at any of it. Well, I don't reckon that's going to change at all, ever. No, no. Well, well, I think it should should change. I personally would support a, a death duty of, of everything above a million at ten percent. Just a modest little death duty of ten percent, and same with the with the capital gains tax on the family home because the capital gains tax, in my view, is a bigger rort than super. Um, and the family home is ten min ten trillion dollars worth of residences out there, all tax free if it's your designated your family home. Ridiculous. There seems to be. A, there's a question here from a lowly council worker. Um, uh, you know all about councils. What's yes. going on with council rate capping? Well below inflation. Is the local government sector going to be a pretty grim place to work over the next little while? Is that right? Well, look, he's basically saying that um, that the governments, the local councils, and ours is no different, are not offering anything like 7.8% pay rises. But that's because the Reserve Bank is, and everyone is telling us not to because we don't want to bake in inflation. So it's no different to working at Coles or Woolies. You're not going to get 7.8% to keep up with the rate of inflation. But Alan, I mean, Alan makes some interesting points that, that I mean, New South Wales has had rate capping since 1979. Their rates are ridiculously low in New South Wales. And that's why you've got councils like Tenterfield which have proposed an 80% increase in two years because they've got flooding and, you know, they're just... Rates are the best form of taxation you can have. It's a wealth tax. The bigger your property, the more valuable your house or your shopping centre, the more you pay. And I'll give you two examples in Melbourne. So we've got we've had rate capping across the councils in Melbourne since 2016. Dan Andrews introduced it. Again, a silly promise from opposition. In the 10 years leading up to rate capping in Victoria the average rate increase each year was 6%. So we had a decade of 6% compound. This made us a very rich local government sector. So Manningham Council's got 95 million cash in the bank. Whitehorse has got 215 million. Uh, Maribyrnong, where Bill Shorten represents, they've got like uh, over 100 million of cash in the bank, no debt. Because Maribyrnong was putting up their rates like crazy. And then now they've got, you've got to pay $1,900 in Maribyrnong for a property worth seven fifty thousand, in Manningham, you only pay nineteen hundred dollars if your property is worth one point three. So we're a low tax council. Ours is 015 percent. Maribyrnong's is 025 percent. So they're ripping off the residents in Maribyrnong because they put up their rates too high. I think everyone should pay 05 percent, and that would raise fifty billion dollars a year on the ten trillion dollars of property, and it's all a wealth tax. And then what could you do with $50 billion of rate revenue, Alan? You could have a real party. You could build lots of roads and bridges for that and lots of swimming pools. And you could pay the workers a bit more too. Not that you've got a 
a conflict of interest at all, Stephen. As a local government councillor, trying to work out how to spend all our cash. Yeah. Um, Kim says, how much does immigration really influence house prices? Seeing article, seeing articles about immigration putting undue pressure on house prices, the question is whether this really is the case. We had high immigration prior to COVID and prices didn't go too crazy. We also hear that it was expats returning during COVID that caused the big spike in 2021-2021. But immigration and population statistics all show how the low numbers during that period. So I think that's very interesting, Kim. It is true that so uh, in, in, in 2021, house prices took off and in some places increased by 40%. But that was because of interest rates. Because of interest rates. Yeah, exactly. Nothing to do with immigration. Nothing to do with immigration. immigration because 300,000 people left the country as soon as COVID hit. Precisely. As Alan so, Joyce said this week. So that tells it. you that Kim's right uh, to a point that interest rates are far more important to house prices than immigration. However, it is not true to say that immigration is not an influence. Of course it is. It is an influence. And it is influencing particularly inner city rents at the moment. Because I used to always, when I was a City of Melbourne councillor, I used to tell people that 42% of our residents in the City of Melbourne are students. It is one of the world's great 24-hour student cities. RMIT, Melbourne Uni, like... The Parkville campus at Melbourne Uni has 12,000 foreign students on that campus. That's the most of any campus in the world, according to Glyn Davis, who's now Albo's head of Prime Minister and Cabinet. He used to come to council and say, we are your biggest export earner. We are generating $300 million a year from foreign students. And we are one of the four biggest cities in the world, along with Paris, New York and London, for international students. So Melbourne is the great booming city that it is today because of international students coming here working 24 hours thanks to Jeff Kennett's wonderful retail deregulation laws that just said anyone can do anything any any time of the day. And so one of the great cities, but they do drive up rents, particularly near universities. But equally, they provide lots of necessary labour. And when ScoMo made the stupidest COVID call of all, which is foreign students go home, get out of here, 300,000 people left the country and we still haven't got over the labour crisis from that stupid decision. Sorry about that rant, Alan. No, it's okay. We love a rant. Um, uh, Zach says, we've heard that Philip Lowe, from Philip Lowe that wage growth should be restrained to contain the rate of inflation. But if a business's income isn't going to wages, where does it go instead? Won't the business income be redirected to buy more equipment and pay dividends? Why is money to employees more inflationary than money to shareholders? Uh, well... <laughs> Well, we're all uh, still terrified of stagflation 1970s. It's basically like, you know, it's just hanging over everyone. And so if you have this compounding wage rises feeding into inflation, it never stops. That's a disaster. So I'm surprised how responsible the unions are at the moment in saying we're going to accept real rates cuts. Like the, no one's actually unions, saying keep up with inflation. have got no power. It's not a matter of responsibility. They're just – they're completely – Impotent. Yeah, but I mean, the econ- nothing to- in, in nominal terms, the economy grew by 10% in calendar 2022. It's because inflation is 78 yeah. and growth, real growth is 3 So that is a massive in, in, in growth inflation of the cost of everything in Australia and real wages have absolutely gone backwards. That's right. Now, I'm going to take a contrarian position on Phil Lowe. Because we've got a question here, how high do interest rates have to go before we call him Phil High, not Phil Low? I watched two and a half of his four and a half hours of parliamentary dissertations and presentations. 
and I was very impressed and I think he should be reappointed. I don't think there's an obvious successor and I thought he cleaned up those politicians and I respect a good person who can handle a grilling and I thought he put in one of the best performances I've seen from sustained parliamentary grilling and I thought it was so good. I think Jim Chalmers should give him another three years so he can round up to the normal 10, which is what the two previous governors got, seven plus three. Are you going to argue with that? Or are you going to join the bashing Phil Lowe bandwagon, which you've been on for a while now since he's broken promise forecasting 24? I'm, I'm driving the... You have, you've driven that. Well, I'm, I'm taking I'm you on now, I'm driving the bandwagon. Pal. I'm taking you I'm, on now, I'm, I'm not only on the bandwagon... I'm saying you were wrong, man. I'm saying I'm saying that Phil has fought his way out of the paper bag, and I think didn't weren't you impressed with how he performed under pressure? How would you unlike, go with look, four and a half you, hours? Unlike you, I did not watch two and a half hours of Phil. Well, Lowe. if you're going to call for someone to be sacked, at least have the good grace to go to school on how they're performing. So get out the YouTube's, I watch it, think, and then uh, you tell me whether you think he was a, it was a masterful performance that deserves reappointment. I don't think that the performance in front of the, the Senate committee and the House committee is has got anything to do with whether he should be reappointed. I mean, sure, okay, good, he's had a good performance, fantastic, but that's got nothing. That's that's minor. That's minimal in terms of his job. Come on. So you're basically saying I mean, that he should send his CV out to the big four banks and work out which which of those he's going to become chairman of uh, later oh, this year. Well, I don't care what he does. I mean, I, th- I just think the place should well, be... Well, that's what they all do. They all cash in. They all go and work for the financial services sector after... Oh, no, uh, no, they don't all do it. Well, Glenn Stevens is... Glenn uh, Stevens is chairman of Macquarie. Right, that's right. McFarlane joined the ANZ board. You know, they, they usually do it. The last two well, big ones... Well, they've got to make a living. What's wrong with that? I Come think on. they should be banned. I think that a Reserve Bank governor should be banned from getting paid by someone they regulate. Anyway, you're getting off track here. This is... Um, <laughs> this is Sorry about that. We're, yes. You know, we're, we're dancing on the grave of Philip Lowe or, or not, in the case the case may be. I mean, I think uh, the board is as culpable as Lowe is for the mistakes that have been made. And... And, and at, so clean the lot of them out, I well, say. I agree. At the renovator's delight, when the review comes in, I think that the biggest certainty is the sacking of the non-executive directors who are not experts in economics. So that's that. The I, usual. I suspect what will happen is that the RBA review committee yes. will will recommend the creation of a monetary policy committee similar to the Federal Reserve, which yep. has um, experts. 17 experts, experts who determine monetary policy and that's their, their that's their job. Correct. They're, they're a, uh, what are they called? They're the FOMC, the Federal yep. Open Market Committee, yep. which is different to the Federal Reserve's Board of Governors. So you could, you could actually leave those directors in place but create another committee mm. of monetary policy yeah, uh, but, but determiners. The directors nom- those, those non-expert directors nominally have the power to set interest rates. I bet there has not been a single time where they've rejected the Gov's recommendation to do anything. Well, we'll never know, will we? So I, I mean, think the other just, thing that the Federal Reserve does is actually tells you um, uh, how many how people voted, and they tell you what the yes. the individuals. Uh, forecasts for yes. interest rates are. Well, I think that I there's much I mean, I think, more I think transparency. individual, you know, what the 17 say is, is is going over the top. I would just like more transparency. But I don't think you should have one of these 17 being able to come out and say, oh, I'm a hawk and look at that dove over there. I mean, it's not very good for sort of solidarity and cohesion. Oh, I, I, I don't think that hurts them at all. I mean, you get that in judgments. You get the, you know, the majority yeah, yeah. of the judges say this, but are they judges? Should we really be disclosing individual decisions? I don't know. 
Well, now finally, I just wanted to touch on the um, uh, Star Entertainment capital raising. They've raised eight hundred million dollars, the biggest capital raising we've seen in 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 six months. What for? To pay a hundred million dollar fine to Queensland, a hundred million dollar fine to New South Wales. Probably a hundred and fifty million dollar fine to Oztrack, a hundred and forty-two million dollar back claim by the ATO on junket GST rorting, and then a hundred million dollar plus increase in their pokies tax, and deal with four class actions. So, I think they've made a big mistake. They should have just said, "We're not raising a dollar. We might go broke, and how dare you put all these fines on us? We can't afford to pay." Government, here's the keys: you can run a casino. They've just created this honeypot for all the people who are piling in on them and 70,000 retail shareholders are going to get unfairly diluted without any compensation because it's a badly structured raising with a $150 million well, placement. Yeah, but they'd get more than diluted if the place went broke. <laughs> yeah, but I, I mean, they'd it, lose everything. It, Come on. It wouldn't That'd go be broke, crazy. What I'm saying is that the government wouldn't dare put them under and the banks don't want to control a toxic casino. I mean, I loved it. In, in the Stock Exchange announcement, they said in this 25 pages of all the terrible things that have happened and could happen to us. There's one that says, our transactional banker has advised that they'll be withdrawing their services on October the 31st this year. It is not yet clear if we'll be able to find anyone to replace them as our transactional banker. Really? So they're unbankable, is what they're saying, because they're so toxic. They're just a money laundering Crikey. machine. So well, why? Who's banking Crown? Somebody's well, banking no, this, these casinos. Yeah, someone's banking the star, but they've said, you've got six months and see you later. And there's a saying, a risk for us is no one will bank us. To write a check, so that's how toxic they are. So why would you give them eight hundred million and help all these other people feasting on the carcass? Well, somebody's given them eight hundred million, haven't they? They've, they've well, raised Bruce, the money, well, right? Bruce Matheson's bought four percent and supported the capital raising, and a couple of big colourful Asian shareholders are in there for eight percent. So there's a few big boys have backed it, and now they'll get the money away and they'll stagger forward. So are they, anyway. are they still going to have two casinos in Sydney? No, oh, they do have. Yeah, they they, have got they've, got, they've got the Stars, the only one that's got uh, regular table games and slots. Packers Casino, now Blackstone. It's just a high roller table thing where you've got to be a member. and So it's actually very exclusive. So it's the main grunt casino in New South Wales. They'll have the, the biggest casino in Brisbane when it's finally built in two years' time after spending $2.5 billion. And their Gold Coast Casino is booming like never before, I suspect, because a lot of the money launderers have gone up there. But uh, I don't know that for a fact, of course, Alan. But uh, why is Gold Coast Casino having record revenues? I would say because the regulators are all over all the other casinos. But uh, well, Presumably just, at some point, Gold Coast Casino will be caught. Is yes. That- yes. Well, that's what I think should happen. But um, anyway... There we are. Always good to catch up, Alan. And good luck being your, you know, with your job at the AICD conference, the, uh, looking after the, the directors' union. The directors' union, exactly. That's right. That's what they are. That's what they are. They're pretty thin-skinned too, so don't give them any wax on the way through. They won't like that. No. No, that's right. Anyway, thanks everyone for listening to today's episode of The Money Cafe. I'll be back next week with James Thompson. Send in your questions and we'll answer it together. Email the money cafe at eurekareport.com.au. Until next week, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report, etc. And Alan, you forgot to follow Greg's advice. The questions are too long, everyone. Please adopt oh, yes. a 280 Twitter style character limit and then we can read them all out. But at the moment, we're getting war and peace in some of these questions, which is a bit we hard. We need to, to that's get right. Through. Short so questions, keep folks. Short your questions, questions to tweets. 
That's what we want. That's right. And I'm Stephen May, and it's been a pleasure. We'll see you in a fortnight.